welcome to the next in the series of Editor's Choice JNIS podcasts. I am happy to welcome uh, two authors on our Editor's Choice articles, which are thrombectomy six to 24 hours after stroke in trial ineligible patients and thrombectomy 24 hours after stroke beyond dawn. Shashvat Desai and Ashutosh Jadev, both from the Department of Neurology at the University of Pittsburgh. I'd like to thank both of you for taking the time for this podcast. And in addition, Ashu, I'd like to thank you for your hard work on our social media team on the JNIS editorial board. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on these two articles. I think, uh, as we know, they, they touch upon an issue that is of tremendous uh, importance in the endovascular management of stroke, and that uh, specifically is uh, which patients we should be treating and at which time windows we should treat them. So, in particular, although your two articles pertain to different time periods of treatment, uh, the central issue remains which patients to treat and not to treat. Can you discuss um, your criteria for treatment and more importantly for non-treatment? Yes, this is a really important question that I think many centers are struggling with now, which is patient selection for thrombectomy. So for patients in the early time window, um, we know from the Hermes trials that patient selection there was predominantly based on CT uh, imaging, sometimes advanced imaging was used. For the late time window trials in Dawn and Diffuse 3, in both situations, advanced imaging was used to identify patients that were most likely to benefit. And in those trials, the criteria for patient selection were fairly rigorous. At our center, prior to the start of the Dawn trial, we were a center that were treating patients beyond six hours since as early as 2008. And in our patient selection, we really focus on patients that we felt had a mismatch based on core imaging and clinical deficit. So in our uh, center, we find that patients who are younger can tolerate a larger core infarct and still have clinical benefit. So we really predominantly used a clinical core mismatch paradigm to select patients that was perhaps not as rigorous as the one used in the DAWN trial. And so when we did our analysis, we found that there was a subset of patients we were treating that didn't strictly meet DAWN criteria, but that we continue to offer treatment to uh, outside of the parameters that were uh, delineated in the trial. So really the, the sort of predominant physiological imaging we've used has been uh, CAT scan imaging. In this late time window, we do use advanced imaging, such as CT perfusion and DWI in areas of uncertainty where we think that perhaps the aspects is not quite as reliable. Yeah. and. Um, the most common reasons for uh, not including uh, patients who we offered treatment in the late time window, uh, but they did not meet uh, dawn or diffuse trial criteria. The most common reason was these patients had a large infarct core volume of more than 70 ml. And that's 50% of the population who we offered uh, treatment. And um, since these two trial criteria were fairly strict, uh, they did not uh, treat patients who had uh, less than adequate baseline functional status or had less than uh, trial-defined mismatch criteria uh, to include them in the trial. 
Excellent. Um, briefly, if you could, um, could you guys outline your conclusions, uh, specifically citing which particular manuscript you're referring to? Why don't we start with a thrombectomy 24 hours after stroke beyond dawn? Our conclusions um, are that patients who meet all dawn trial criteria but are treated beyond 24 hours of last known well have similar uh, safety and efficacy outcomes. Uh, as compared to the intervention arm of the DAWN trial. And uh, we find that the clinical core mismatch is the most significant uh, factor in these patients, and time becomes less relevant uh, to choose patients up with thrombectomy. And in many ways, the 24-hour time point is really somewhat arbitrary. I mean, there's no reason to think that at 24 hours or 25 hours, the therapy stops being beneficial. For the purposes of the trial design, there was some upper cutoff in terms of time window. But in, again, in our clinical practice, we find that there is a subset of population, pretty small numbers, but a subset that does present beyond 24 hours that continues to have what we call slow progressors or patients with very favorable uh, collaterals that allow them to maintain uh, their penumbral state. And those populations, even at 25 hours, 26 hours, there's been a recent uh, publication in, in Janus from one of our uh, collaborators and our, one of our former fellows uh, uh, at, uh, in Jacksonville. And what they reported is a patient who presented uh, several days out from symptoms onset and still benefited from thrombectomy. So the time window really is somewhat arbitrary. The other thing to bear in mind is that if you look at the dawn and diffuse three uh, patient populations that were treated in the medical arm. Um, when they presented uh, initially, the cores were small, less than 10 cc's. But even in the medical arm, if you look at the 24-hour core, it was in the order of about 20 cc's. That is to say that the core grows very, very slowly in that medical arm population. And eventually, the, the infarct grows and, and it's sort of a slow burn. So there's no reason to think that the treatment stopped being beneficial beyond 24 hours, and that's what we're seeing in that beyond 24 hours paper. Well, one issue, though, that I did want to touch on uh, and that you just uh, were discussing, but I feel we should kind of flesh out a little bit more is this, this issue of the slow progressor. Can you guys discuss what you really hold as the clinical and radiological data that you think best defines this uh, population of slow progressors? So we know that in the situation of a large vessel occlusion that neurons die, uh, start dying pretty quickly. And that's been estimated previously by Jeff Saver to be about 2 million neurons per minute. What we find now, though, is that there's probably heterogeneity in the rate of infarct growth and loss of neurons. There are patients who lo lose neurons even faster than 2 million per minute, and there's patients who uh, lose neurons much slower than 2 million uh, per minute. And what that spread indicates is that there's different biologies underlying these different populations of patients. So when we say fast progressors, we mean someone who has poor collaterals or poor reserve in terms of tolerating ischemia, and they quickly have a large uh, core, large infarct, and not much tissue to salvage. And patients that are slow progressors, despite severe clinical deficit, they don't uh, quite yet have infarcted irreversible injury. And when we look at patients and try to determine are they fast progressors or slow progressors, one of the strongest sort of indicators of that is infarct volume on presentation. So uh, we, we think basically 
by definition, someone who presents at, as a wake-up stroke or beyond six hours with a small core, we think that by definition, that identifies a slow progressor. Sure. Yeah. It, 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 it in all likelihood, is a multifactorial uh, issue that, that contributes to the slow progressor group, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, let's go back to your Beyond Dawn article. Um, the review period went back as far as 2010 and included 21 patients, and of these, there were four deaths. Uh, why did you include patients that were not treated with currently used devices? That's a great question. Um, so we, we did go back to uh, 2010 to include patients who may have met uh, dawn trial criteria but were treated beyond 24 hours. Our rationale behind this was um, to try and capture as many patients who we may have intuitively treated using dawn trial criteria, which were later defined in the trial, and increase the sample size of our study. And it is true that uh, four out of uh, the 19 patients, uh, they did die. And uh, we, we went back and looked at them. Um, these four patients were treated using stent reverse, and they all were over the age of 70. So that may have been a factor. Uh, but that said, uh, the safety and efficacy outcomes uh, in this subgroup of patients who meet dawn trial criteria and were treated beyond 24 hours are similar and comparable to the dawn trial intervention arm and the diffuse three trial intervention arm. So uh, these patients are at uh, uh, they if they meet a significant mismatch criteria, they can benefit, but they also suffer from uh, similar uh, safety uh, outcomes as the uh, six to 24 hour population. I, I think that if you look at the patients that we've been treating beyond six hours, uh, as I mentioned, we've been treating them as early as 2008. The techniques that we've used have obviously evolved with the technologies available. But as we can see in both uh, manuscripts here, we've used aspiration alone in uh, a portion of this population. And there's no suggestion that aspiration also can't be uh, an, an adequate technique for clot retrieval uh, beyond six hours. So in terms of your question of, of which technologies may be best, I think as long as you're achieving good recanalization rates, whether you're using stent treavers uh, or aspiration, uh, it really seems to be uh, uh, efficacious in, in both circumstances. And that there is a subset of patients who present uh, at late time windows that have intrinsic lesions, and that may account for why they have favorable collaterals. And in that population with intrinsic lesions, uh, the techniques that we use, stentrievers and aspiration, may not be uh, adequate. And in a few rare circumstances, it may be important to leave behind a stent to keep the blood vessel open. Uh, but of course, at least in the Dawn trial, uh, leaving behind a stent was not was considered a protocol uh, deviation and was not uh, encouraged in the protocol. Sure. When you talk about intrinsic lesions, you're specifically uh, referring to atherosclerotic disease. Exactly. Atherosclerotic disease intracranially. There, there were uh, a subset of patients in both Dawn and Diffuse 3 that had uh, tandem lesions that had extracranial stenosis as well. And again, in the Dawn trial, it was not permissible to acutely stent uh, those lesions and we would stent them in a delayed fashion. Well, uh, clearly there are patients who will benefit from treatment that are beyond the scope of currently accepted uh, standards. Um, I think we, we do know now that retrospective analyses probably won't 
define that population. Uh, your articles suggest that many more patients could benefit from mechanical thrombolysis. So I'd like to ask you how you would delineate this population. Specifically, what do you guys feel is the type of randomized trial or trials that will need to be done in the future? I mean, surely we, we can't treat all patients. So I think that right now we're at this point where we have great randomized controlled trials that have been conducted both in the early and late time window with fairly rigorous selection criteria. And as such, we have a um, number needs to treat anywhere in the range of three, uh, as we saw in Extend IA and Dawn and Diffuse 3, and a number needs to treat of nine in MR Clean, but still less than 10. And so certainly in these trials, we selected patients fairly rigorously. And then the question arises, what happens to patients that are outside of trial criteria? And really the two uh, or three major groups of patients that are, are left are patients with uh, M2 occlusions, uh, patients with large cores, and patients with low NIH. And that's really the three sort of groups that are outstanding now. And that's for the anterior circulation, of course. We don't have data right now for posterior circulation. But for the anterior circulation, those are the th sort of three groups that are remaining where there's either equipoise or no data to support treatment. And we've looked you know, at our own center and these populations, the M2s uh, comprise of LVOs uh, anywhere uh, in the range of about uh, 20 to 25% of patients. The patients with uh, low NIH comprise about 10% uh, of patients and large core patients are also in the range of about uh, 10 to 15% of patients. So there's a chunk of patients out there that we currently don't have data to treat. So if you look at the recent uh, Hermes analysis in Lancet Neurology, they looked at clinical predictors of favorable outcomes. And interestingly in that analysis, and there are some methodological issues of that paper, but what they do find is that even with patients with an a CT or MR aspect of three to five, there is a treatment effect favoring endovascular therapy in these sort of large core or low aspect patients. So I think right now, when we look at as a community, we have to sort of decide wh which are the patients we have equipoise for. So I think for M2 occlusions uh, in the current sort of climate, there's a lot of retrospective data, registry data supporting the benefit of M M2 uh, treatment uh, with endovascular therapy. It may be difficult to do an M2 trial uh, given perhaps the lack of equipoise, uh, but certainly uh, that could be considered. I think the other two groups for which there are trials currently either underway or planned is for large core. So there's the tension trial uh, being conducted in Europe for patients with aspect of three to five. And uh, in extremis is another trial that's currently being uh, launched for patients with large core. And then the other group is the low NIH, that is NIH of less than six. And there are two trials uh, as well that's also ex in extremis and endo low. So I think that those, uh, those three trials are going to be very informative in terms of understanding what to do with these large core and low NIH populations separately. And again, I think M2s, which we had a quite a bit of in our non-diffuse non population, I think that's a population that will be difficult to have equipoise and randomized, but you know, there may be some uh, appetite for that as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there is a, a substantial number of patients that we are not capturing and, and that could certainly benefit uh, from treatment. These are incredibly exciting times uh, for our field.
Well, I, I want to wrap things up and, and congratulate both of you again on your two uh, outstanding manuscripts. Uh, these issues of um, timing and patient selection in the treatment of stroke are issues of monumental importance. And I thank both of you and your co-authors for continuing the debate and continuing the clinical research uh, on this uh, very important patient population. So again, these two articles are currently online uh, on the JNIS website and will appear in the print issue in November of the JNIS. Thank you all for participating today. Yes, Philippe, thank you very much for uh, accepting our data and giving us a chance to present our manuscript at the JNIS podcast. Thank you, Philippe.